Well, good morning. I am so excited about this series. And to kick off the series, I want to tell you a story um, because I think the story will help us think about why we're doing this series. About five years ago, um, I was coaching a basketball team here at the church. We have a program that we do called Upward, just a little basketball league. And so I was down in the gym and I was coaching this team of third and fourth graders. And it was the last game of the season. We were four and three, which means we had four wins and three losses. And so this last game was a big deal because if we won, we were going to have a winning record for the year. And if we lost, we were just going to have a neutral record. And so big game, you know, and the team's fired up. And so we go into this last game and we were up by 20 at halftime. We were just killing them. And then uh, we blew the lead. Um, and so it, it came down to the last few seconds and the last possession. They, this team had tied it up, and or I think we were actually down by one. And so we're, we're down by one, we've got the ball, and come to find out, you can call timeouts in this league. And I had never called a timeout before in this little league that we were in, but I called a timeout, we brought everybody over, we've got the ball, and we've never drawn a play the whole time, like the whole season, zero plays, all right? It's pretty much just running around out there. But uh, because the game's on the line, I'm like, man, we got to draw something up here, okay? And so I get this clipboard. I don't even know why we had been using the clipboard up until then, but we, we had one. And so I bring everybody over, and I draw up this play. Now, it was such a great play. I want to put it on the screen for you and explain to you uh, what was going on, okay? So I want to make sure you can see this. Now, you got to understand, in this particular league, okay, you got to guard your man, and there's no double teaming, all right? So there's no zone, no double team, and so here's why this is such a brilliant play. You see these numbers? Number two here, that's our best player on the team, all right? So we isolated him over down by the elbow, and we put everybody else at half court, all right? So we got one, just a few seconds left, we got one last play, and we are going to, uh, you know, so I draw this up, and I'm like, here's what's going to happen. Tyler was number two. Tyler, you're going you're gonna to run towards the ball. You're going to call for the ball. Then, number one, you're going to pump fake. And then, Tyler, you're going to run a back door. You're going to throw a bounce pass. You're going to catch the bounce pass. Then we're going to hit the layup, and we're about to win this whole game, all right? And so it was awesome. And granted, okay, we've never drawn a play before. They don't know what a pump fake is. They don't know what a backdoor cut is. <laughs> never used those terms before. Okay, so this is all brand new information. But we break the huddle. I'm like, everybody knows what to do. Yes, okay. We break the huddle, we get out there. And it works exactly like I drew it up, man. Tyler comes towards the ball. Jude was number one. He pump fakes. Tyler runs the back door. He throws this great bounce pass. Tyler catches the ball. And at this moment, I'm like, dude, we did Coach K, right? Like, I'm ready. I, like, this is, this is it. And so Tyler catches the ball at the elbow. And then he just starts running towards the basket. And he doesn't dribble. <laughs> and so they call traveling, and we lose the game. So we had a neutral record. Now, uh, Tyler comes running over after, you know, right after the play. And I was like, Tyler, what happened? And he just looked at me and said, Coach, I forgot to dribble. And so I thought, all right, if I'm ever in that moment again, I'm going to break the huddle by saying, then don't forget to dribble, right? Now, here's the reason I tell you that story, okay? Because I think that it's possible for the same thing to happen in the church. 
that we can get so fixated on the plays and the programs and all of this stuff that we've got going on that we can forget some of the most fundamental things that you have to do if you're going to be a church. See, with Tyler, we did a bunch of dribbling drills at the first few practices, but then as the season went on, we weren't doing those drills anymore. But they were just as fundamental to the game at the end of the season as they were at the beginning of the season, and the same is true in life, right? But also in the church, that there are some foundational, fundamental things that we've got to be about if we're gonna be a church that's built to last Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, what's the difference between a house that falls when a storm comes and a house that stands? The foundation, what it's built on. And the same is true for our church. By God's grace, we've been here for 75 years and that's great and God's done a lot of great things in the past. But how do we know if we're built to last? We've got to look at our foundation. And so in this series called Built to Last, we're going to look at some of the core habits and values that we've got to stay committed to if we're going to be a church that's built to last. And so I want to preview this whole series for us. It's going to be a seven-week series, so it'll conclude on May 23rd. And I, I just want to give you a preview of what we're going to be talking about in this series, okay? So this is on the screen for you. There are four core habits that we've got to be about if we're going to be a church that's built to last. And we've done a lot of uh, thinking about this and praying about this as a staff, and so we boiled this down to four core habits. Here they are. Gather. We've got to gather together. Number two, commit. Number three, serve. And number four, retreat. If we're going to be a church that's built to last, we've got to gather, commit, serve, and retreat. Gather, commit, serve, and retreat. And just to kick off the series, because this is like dribbling, just to kick off the series, we're going to say these four things together, because by the end of the series, the goal is that you're going to have these things memorized, all right? So let's say them together. Gather, commit, serve, and retreat. Good job. Now, why must we gather The reason that we must gather is because we believe in Bible teaching. We believe in Bible teaching. And we believe in worship. And so those are values that we believe in. And so we gather in order to do those things, to open up God's word and hear what God has to say and to worship. Why must we commit Because we believe in community. And the kind of community that God wants to build here is only the kind of community that you get when you're committed to one another. Why must we serve? Because we believe in passing on the faith to the next generation. We believe in next generation ministry. Why must we serve? Because we believe in what we're calling local kindness. We want to be a church that that is a blessing to our community. And why must we serve? Because we believe in global missions. We believe that the message of Jesus is for all the peoples of the earth. 
and we're committed to taking it there. So why must we serve? Because we believe in next generation ministry. We believe in local kindness and we believe in global missions. And why must we retreat? And what do I mean by the, the word retreat? And we had a lot of debate about this and finally I just said, guys, this, the word retreat is just, it's like in my heart, you know? And so we gotta go with it. Uh, but, but why the word retreat? Here's why. Because throughout the gospels, Jesus is active doing a lot of ministry, but then before and after he withdraws from the crowd, he retreats from the everyday life of ministry in order to spend time with his heavenly father. And if we're going to, going to be a church that's built to last, then we as a church and us as individuals have to be committed to a rhythm of retreat that is stepping outside the normal flow of life to focus on our relationship with the Lord. And that happens sometimes collectively. That's why we have men's retreats and women's retreats and student retreats. But we also need to cultivate a rhythm of retreat in our personal life. And so we're gonna talk about that uh, in this series. So seven-week series, we'll talk about each of these values underneath the four habits in the series. So today, we're talking about Bible teaching. Bible teaching. And so I just want to consider a simple question today. Why do we teach the Bible and how do we do it? Why do we teach the Bible and how do we do it? You maybe have been coming to church for a long time and it's just assumed like, yeah, at some point somebody's going to stand up there and talk and they're going to open up the Bible. But this is going to be a sermon about sermons. Why do we teach the Bible and how do we do it? To answer that question, we're going to look at um, a passage of scripture where the Apostle Paul is writing to a young preacher, a young pastor, and he's giving him some instructions. This is one of the last things that the Apostle Paul wrote before he died. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 14 down through chapter 4, verse 4. Um, and we're going to read it all together, and then we're going to talk about it. All right, so 2 Timothy chapter three, starting in verse 14. But as for you, talking to Timothy, this young pastor, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you and you know that from infancy, you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. Verse three. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. Verse four. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. So why do we teach the Bible and how do we do it? 
Here's the answer, and we'll unpack this. We teach the Bible because the Bible is God's word, and God's word gives life. We teach the Bible because the Bible is God's word, and God's word gives life. So, first, the Bible is God's word. What do we mean when we say that? That's common, you know. uh, In fact, that's what uh, was said earlier today after Ezekiel 37 was read. This is God's word. What do we mean by that? Well, first, we mean that the Bible is God's word because it is God-breathed. It is God-breathed. Look at verse 16 again. It says, all scripture is inspired by God. And that word inspired is literally the word God-breathed. What does that mean? Well, if you didn't have a mask on and I wasn't concerned about making you take your mask off, um, I would ask you to put your hand in front of your face like this. And I would ask you just to whisper a sentence like, my name is Nate. And in doing so, you would feel your breath on your hand. Why? Because when you speak, you're breathing. You're breathing out the words. And so to say that all of Scripture, referring to the Old Testament and then by deduction, the New Testament, and there is a logical flow to why we deduce that about the New Testament that we can't get into today. But all of Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, is breathed by God because it's God who is speaking it. This is also true in creation. Think about this. How did God create the world? By speaking. And what's interesting is just before he starts to speak, it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And the word spirit is the same word in Hebrew and in Greek, the the languages that the Bible was originally written in. The word spirit is the same as breath. And so by saying that God breathed the word, it's saying that God's spirit is the one who made this happen. And in creation, when God was speaking, there was the spirit carrying out what he was saying. So all scripture is God breathed. It's God who is speaking in the Bible. And this has major implications for us. This means that the Bible has authority. It should shape our understanding of God and ourselves and the world. This also means that the Bible is true and trustworthy. Why? Because God is true and trustworthy and it's him who's speaking. It also means that the Bible is sufficient It tells us everything we need to know in order to obey God. There's not some additional information that you've got to get if you're going to live a life of obedience to God. The Bible is sufficient. It is God's word. But in saying that the Bible is God's word, that doesn't mean that it's like a book that fell out of heaven and somebody picked it up one day and was like, oh, man, this is God's word. Wow. Because how does God speak? The way that God spoke in order to write the scripture is he worked through people. So the Bible has God as an author, but it also has human authors, dozens of them. 
Peter describes it like this in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, above all, you know this. No prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. Verse 21. Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible is God's word through a human author. And so just as Jesus is the true word of God, and we can say he is truly God and truly man, so with the Bible, God's word, we can say it is truly of God and it is truly of man. The fact that God is speaking through the Bible doesn't override the human author. The human's personality and argumentation and word choice was still maintained. And yet that human author who wrote the collection of documents that makes up the Bible was being carried along, was being moved along like a boat on water by the Spirit of God. And this is why when you read different parts of the Bible, they read differently. Because Moses was a different person than David. And Peter was a different person than Paul. And Luke was a different person than John. And so, the Bible is God's word. What does that mean? It it means that it's breathed by God. That God's spirit, his breath, is what moved the writers to write what they wrote. The Bible is also God's word because it is about Jesus. It testifies about Jesus. So the Bible is God's word. Why? Because it's God breathed. It's God speaking. And because this message that it speaks testifies to the true word of God, Jesus there is a common pushback that is starting to arise um, in theological circles. Um, and the, the question or the pushback goes like this. Is Jesus the word of God or is the Bible the word of God? In John chapter one, it says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and it's talking about Jesus. And so is Jesus the word of God or is the Bible the word of God. And that question is used to say things like this. Jesus is the true word of God, and so we need to follow him, not the Bible. That's being used today most commonly to affirm certain uh, sexual behavior and sexual uh, thinking that is contrary to what the Bible plainly teaches. And so the way that Uh, people try to appeal uh, to the desire for their view of sexuality is by saying, well, the Bible is not what we need to follow because the Bible is just a diary. It's a collection of spiritual thoughts from men. Instead, we need to follow the true word of God, Jesus. And when you look at Jesus, he's the kind of person who would let me do this or let me do that. The problem is that Jesus and the Bible are not in competition. Rightly understanding Jesus and rightly understanding the Bible are the same thing because the Bible testifies about Jesus. 
Look at what Paul says in verse 15 here in the text we read. He says, and you know that from infancy you've known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Reading the Bible, even the Old Testament, makes you wise in order to be able to trust Jesus. It gives you information you need in order to be able to have faith in Jesus. Um, That's why the authors are selective about what's included. The Bible is not just a collection of random stories and random people and random events. Instead, they're intentional stories that are put together in such a way that tell a bigger unified story that culminate in Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And so the Bible ultimately testifies about Jesus. It helps you see God's character, that he's wise and kind and generous and faithful. It helps you see your sin and your need for a savior. When you read the Bible, it should help you see that, oh, I'm foolish, I'm selfish, I'm greedy, I'm unfaithful. But then it doesn't leave you there. Instead, it also helps you see who the Savior is that you need. And the Savior is the son of Abraham, the son of David, the prophet like Moses. It's Jesus. And this is also what Jesus taught. This is something Jesus was aware of and taught his followers. Listen to John chapter five. He's correcting the Pharisees who knew the Bible better than anyone else in their culture except for Jesus. And here's what Jesus says. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them And yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Jesus is saying, look, you can study the Old Testament all you want. If you read the Old Testament and yet you reject me, you weren't reading it right. And he could say, but if you come to me and you're you're like, well, we're gonna accept you, but we're gonna reject the Bible. Jesus is going, but don't you know that the Bible is testifying about me? This is also what Jesus taught in Luke 24, verse 27. Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Luke 24, 44 and 45, we looked at this last week. He's with his disciples and he he told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Preaching the Bible, teaching the Bible and preaching Jesus are the same thing when done rightly. So why do we teach the Bible? Because the Bible is God's word. It is God-breathed and it is about Jesus. And that leads to the second point. Why do we teach the Bible? Because it's God's word. And God's word gives life. It gives 
life. How many of you know that words are powerful? That the words that someone speaks to you, they can either put wind in your sails or they can crush you. When I was in high school, I was a junior in high school and there was a teacher who came up to me and she just said some really encouraging, positive things to me. She called me to her class and she just said, Nate, I wanna share some of this stuff with you. And what she didn't know is at that point in my life, I was feeling insecure. I had some ideas that I wanted to pursue for myself, but I was just a little afraid to do so. And this teacher's words spoke life into me. They were like wind for my sails that carried me along. And that's what God's word is like. In college, I had a professor who listened to me preach a sermon and he said, Nate, you've got to learn to nuance your theology. You've got to nuance your theology. And at the time, I didn't even know what the word nuance meant. So I was like, ah, okay, thanks. But, but that rings in my head. That's one of the reasons that I teach with notes now. I used to teach without notes and I was way more engaging. I would think of funny stories when I was going and I would, you know, the problem is I get myself into trouble when I get off of the notes because I start to say things that are not good or smart or nuanced. And this professor was trying to help me see that, hey, use precision, be accurate with your words. He was speaking life into me. And that's what God's word wants to do for you. He wants to speak life to you. God's word always brings life. Think about the story of the Bible. What is accomplished by God speaking in the beginning? Everything is made that is made. Literally, God's word is what brought things into existence. It's what created life because his word brings life. In the garden, when he puts Adam and Eve in the garden, he's given them a word because he wants them to experience life. At Mount Sinai, before God gives his law to his people, he's saying, if you will follow this, if you will listen to this and then do what it says, you're gonna have life in the land that I'm trying to give you. God's word is intended to bring life. And we have an enemy whose words are intended to destroy. The enemy's words are words that twist and manipulate and deceive the strategy of Satan is the same strategy as that of most corrupt governments throughout history. And that is to spread propaganda, to make you believe something that's not true. And in doing so, control you and destroy you. That's Satan's tactic. God's tactic. God's word brings life. And the reason we've got to be aware of that is because there is a temptation for me 
and for you and for every church to be deceived, to not want to teach the Bible for whatever reason, there could be a number of them, but instead to want to teach what we think, to be wise in our own eyes. And this is why Paul warns Timothy. He's saying, hey, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. That is when it feels good and when it feels hard. When it's convenient and when it's not convenient. Preach the word. And here's why. Because a day is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But they'll want to hear what they want to hear. And they'll collect teachers for themselves who will tell them what they want to hear. But you, Timothy, preach the word. We are committed to preaching the word because it's, it's God's word and because God's word gives life. And we want you to live. How does God's word give life? He says in verse 15, that from infancy you've known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation. For salvation. God's word is what makes someone come alive spiritually. The way that you become a Christian is by hearing and believing God's word. This is why we read Ezekiel 37 earlier. There's this valley of dry bones. God comes to Ezekiel and says, is there any way that this valley can live? And he says, only you know. And then how does God make the bones, the dry bones start to live again? By speaking to them. And that is a picture of what happens when when a heart receives the word about Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. That's a picture. Ezekiel 37 is a picture of that. This is why James, in James 1.18, says this. Listen to this. By God's own choice, he gave us birth. He brought us to life by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creature. How does God make us alive? Through his word. 1 Peter 1.23. You have been born again. You have been born again, made alive, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. This is why Ephesians 1.13 says, In him, in Christ, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. Notice that here, the word of truth refers to the gospel. Why can he say the word of truth and it refer to the gospel and not to all of scripture? Because all of scripture is testifying about the gospel. There is no competition To preach the Bible and to preach the gospel is the same thing if it's done rightly. This is why in Galatians 3, we receive the Spirit by believing what we heard. This is why in Romans 10, people have to be sent so that they can proclaim 
the message so that people can hear and believe. That's how people are brought from death to life. We are saved by hearing and believing God's word. Salvation is not achieved, it's received. We are not saved. We are not brought to life spiritually. We will not live forever in heaven based on the things that we do for God. The way that we are brought from death to life is by receiving what God has done for us. This is why James chapter one earlier says, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your soul. So this is a seed-like message that is preached. And that means that we don't judge the results immediately. Bible teaching is like scattering seed and then praying and waiting that it would fall on good soil and take root and see fruit. But it might take years before you see fruit. See, the church is not a factory where we're just like pumping out disciples, like we put you know, the right input data in and if we do this stuff, then the church will automatically grow and we'll pump out you know, Christians. The church is a farm. There are seasons. There's a rhythm. There's scattering of seed. There's watering. There's praying that it would land on good soil. There's working the soil. This is why we gotta be ready in season and out of season to do this. So God's word makes us alive and God's word keeps us alive. This is why Paul says to Timothy that this all scripture is breathed by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. By teaching, we help people understand God's truth. By rebuking, we help others see their error where they've deviated from God's truth. By correcting, we restore people to the truth where they've been in error. And by training, we show people how to live according to God's truth. This is why James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It doesn't do any good just to hear. You've got to receive and then do and then obey. And when you do so, when you hear God's word and then do what it says, it will make you better at life. It will keep you alive. There are a hundred ways we could illustrate that. But one is just in your relationships. God's word says, this is a simple principle, be slow to speak, slow to anger, but quick to listen. Now, if you would hear that command, I'm going to be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to anger. If you had always heard and obeyed that command, think about all of the problems that you would have been spared at home, at work. Why? Because God's word gives life. If you're tempted, if, if you're a skeptic about the Bible or Christianity, 
you've probably got good reasons for that. And maybe one of your reasons is you've seen some Christians who supposedly took the Bible really seriously, but they lived like fools. And you thought, man, they, just, that guy's an idiot. Is it possible that the wisdom you were using to critique them as a fool is actually wisdom that is found in God's word? And that you were actually using the standard that they should be living up to to judge them which is just validating the wisdom of the Bible. And so maybe, even though you're skeptical, you should come and take it seriously and learn how to read it and how to understand it for yourself. So why do we teach the Bible? Because it's God's word, and God's word gives life. It brings us to life, and it keeps us alive. Listening to one great sermon may not change your life, but consistently putting yourself in a position to hear Bible teaching will. So, how do we teach it? What is good Bible teaching? There's a lot of different preferences and personalities and all that stuff is valid. I think a great assignment would be to read 2 Timothy and just look at all the adverbs that he uses to describe the kind of teaching that should take place. Patiently, gently, faithfully, accurately, diligently. It'd be a good little Bible study, but we don't have time for that today. So I just want to boil down some of what he says to three quick things. Here's the kind of Bible teaching that, that we want to be a part of. Here's who I want to be as a Bible teacher. And you can use this standard to judge my sermons. Was it clear was it clear? In other words, could you understand what I was talking about? Okay? It's not to say that every concept will be easy to grasp, but the words that I use and the way that the sermon flows should be easy for you to follow. Bible teaching is not just about covering the material. There's a story that I heard about a, a young professor who sat down with an older professor and he asked the older professor, what do you teach? And the older professor laughed and said, students, what do you teach? And the point was, look, you can get so focused on the material that you forget that it's people that you're trying to help learn the material. And sermons that are not clear don't help. And so we want the Bible to be clear, and this has always been a goal of the church. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he comes, 1 Corinthians, he comes not with this you know, lofty human wisdom, but with preaching Christ and him crucified. The first 500 years of the church, the reason that the Christian worldview overtook the West is because there were Christian thinkers who were communicating much more clearly and effectively than the pagans. They outthought the rest of the world. And their clarity of communication is what shaped the West. In the Reformation, this is the principle that was rescued. See, for a long time, church services were done in Latin. 
And at one point, that was a really good thing because everybody spoke Latin. But then over time, people didn't speak Latin anymore, but they were still doing the service in Latin. And so you would come and you would listen and you wouldn't understand anything that was going on up here because it was all in a language that you couldn't understand. And they didn't care about that because they were like, well, you get credit for being here. And so, you know, just sit back and you'll be fine. And the reformers came along and they understood this principle that God's word is powerful and gives life. And so they thought, we've got to get this in people's heart language. So they stopped doing the service in Latin and started doing it in German. And they translated the New Testament. They translated the Old Testament into the language of normal, everyday people. And that's what good Bible teaching is, is it's, it's clear. It's easy to understand. Two, it's practical. It's easy to use. It should be relevant and helpful in normal life. Sometimes following Jesus can feel like this spiritual thing that's detached from normal life. Good Bible teaching helps bring the theoretical of God's word down to earth. And then three, it should be clear, practical, and gospel-centered. Gospel-centered. That is, it should be easy to help you see Jesus and the salvation that he brings. Some sermons are just random facts about the Bible. I grew up in a church where for eight weeks we did a series on the gates of Nehemiah. There's the dung gate and the people's gate. And, the, and I still, to this day, I know way more about the book of Nehemiah now than I did then. I still have no idea what those sermons were about. Random information about the Bible sermons, not helpful. Moralistic sermons, that is, how to be a good person like the Bible characters, not helpful. Sometimes it is helpful to, you know, see a Bible character and think about them as an example and try to think through my life in light of what they experienced. That, that can be helpful. But just teaching, look, be like Abraham, it's not helpful because Abraham is a sinner like you who needs a savior named Jesus. The, the story of Abraham is intended to help us get to Jesus, the one who can save sinners. There's also feel-goodism sermons where God just wants you to be happy and you know the whole sermon just feels like a big hug. And sometimes that can be fine, but a gospel-centered sermon requires you to own up to the fact that there's sin that needs to be dealt with. Not so that you can crucify yourself, but because there's a savior who's been crucified for you in your place. There's also fire and brimstone sermons where everything is about coming forward and being saved and get up now and we're gonna sing another verse and come on. And that, you know, that's one way of, of preaching. But if everything is about coming forward and being saved, then it, we forget the fact that the gospel is supposed to pertain to all of life. It's supposed to make you a better dad. It's supposed to make you a better husband. It's supposed to transform your thinking. It's a sermon that's gospel-centered. Helps you see Jesus, but then is also practical and helps you follow Jesus. So why do we teach? Because the Bible is God's word and God's word gives life, and how do we teach it in a way that's clear, practical, and gospel-centered?
my hope as a preacher and my hope as a pastor and my hope for this church is that we would always be a church that remembers to dribble, that doesn't get tired of basic, God-honoring, clear, practical, gospel-centered Bible teaching. We wanna be a church that is committed to gathering to teach the Bible because we believe the Bible gives life. And it should affect every area of our church. It should affect our worship service. This is why we try to sing songs that, that have lyrics that are just drenched in Bible truth. This is why we have a moment in the service where we read from God's word. This is why, in general, we preach through books of the Bible because week by week, sermon by sermon, section by section, we want minds to be renewed and habits to be changed and desires to be created and character to be built. We want you to be formed into the image of God's son, Jesus. The only way to do that is by looking at what testifies to him. This is why we wanna be a church with groups where we get together to talk about what we're learning in the Bible and apply it to our lives. We wanna be a church where kids are taught the Bible in a way that they can understand, where middle school students are given the foundation to start to think critically about how the Bible relates to their life and where high school students are encouraged to, to discover their gifts and then begin to use those to teach others. We wanna be a church where where it's normal to be talking about what you're learning in the Bible. Because the Bible is God's word and God's word gives life. So I'm gonna pray for us and ask the Holy Spirit to help us be that kind of church. Father, thank you for sending your son, the true word of God. And Father, thank you also for your Holy Spirit moving and the human authors who wrote the documents that gave us the Bible. God, would you help us to be a church who always lifts up your word and in so doing lifts up Jesus so that you can draw all people to greater love and faith. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Would you stand?